Good afternoon, and thank you for attending this session. I'm Michael Kessler uh, of Georgetown University. I am the chair of the Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you to this afternoon's Marty Forum with Reverend J. Brian Hare and Professor Sean Casey. The Public Understanding of Religion Committee fosters attention to the broad public understanding of religion and the role of religion in public life. We are a standing committee of the board of the American Academy of Religion. One of the delightful tasks we have is to select the recipient of the annual Martin E. Marty Award for the Public Understanding of Religion. The award was established in 1996, and the first recipient, aptly enough, was Martin Marty, the paradigm of a scholar whose work aimed to inform both the academy and the broader publics. And from the charge, the award, quote, recognizes extraordinary contributions to the public understanding of religion. The award goes to those whose work has a relevance and eloquence that speaks not just to scholars, but more broadly to the public as well. The contribution can be any medium, such as books, films, TV, public speaking, so long as it is based on scholarship and religion. Nominees need not be AAR members or academics. Theologian Reverend J. Brian Hare of Harvard University and the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston is the 2016 recipient of the Martin E. Marty Award for the Public Understanding of Religion. The following biography was, uh, notes or extractions from the biography um, are drawn from my colleague Eric Owens's um, account, which was uh, posted in the uh, Religious Studies News recently. Um, Eric will be taking over for chair as soon as I walk away from this podium in a minute. <laughs> I will run, not walk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will be running, not walking. Throughout his career, Professor Hare has moved seamlessly among his roles as parish priest, professor, and policy advisor, while maintaining a remarkable commitment to the public dimensions of his work in all three areas. Born in 1940 in Lowell, Massachusetts, he was ordained a diocesan priest in 1966 after completing his AB and MDiv at St. John's Seminary in Boston. From 1973 to 92, he worked on the staff of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, directing at various times the Office of International Affairs and the Department of Social and Political Affairs. Father Hare was the chief author of the U.S. Bishop's 1983 pastoral letter on nuclear weapons entitled The Challenge of Peace, God's Promise and Our Response, which, in, which interpreted church teachings on the use of force in international conflict in light of the threat of nuclear war. The pastoral letter gained national attention and served as a paradigmatic example of public theology that would be followed by future pastoral letters from the Catholic Church as well as other religious communities in the U.S. Father Hare received a prestigious MacArthur Fellowship in 1984, in part in recognition for this important work. Father Hare's professional academic career began with his appointment in 1984 as the Joseph P. Kennedy Professor of Ethics at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Having completed his Ph.D. at Harvard Divinity School in 1977, he rejoined his colleagues there in 93 as a professor of the practice in religion and society at Harvard Divinity School. By this time, he was recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on just war theory, particularly the challenge, challenges presented by terrorism, humanitarian intervention, and nuclear proliferation. In 1998, 1998, Father Hare was asked to lead the school through a period of turmoil, and he became its first Catholic head, though he declined the title of dean and continued to serve as parish priest at St. Paul's Church in Cambridge. Amidst his scholarly work, Father Hare has also continued to serve 
the Catholic Church in leadership positions in social policy and service. From 2001 to 2003, he served as president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA, the umbrella organization for more than 1,400 Catholic social service agencies across the country. In 2003, the new Archbishop of Boston, Sean O'Malley, called him home to lead the Archdiocese's robust Catholic Charities organization. He was soon elevated to the position of Secretary for Healthcare and Social Services with responsibility for the Archdiocese's work with healthcare, education, poverty, refugee resettlement, and income, uh, sorry, and more. Um, he continues to serve as one of now Cardinal O'Malley's closest advisors, even after returning to Harvard as the Parker Gilbert Montgomery Professor of the Practice of Religion and Public Life at the Kennedy School of Government. For more than 40 years, Father Hare has been among the most prominent and influential voices of American Catholicism, in large part because of his commitment to the public dimension of his academic and, scholar and ecclesiastical work. He is engaged in long-term working relationships with diplomats, elected officials, military leaders, policymakers, and social workers on a range of issues at the intersection of religion and public life. For this important work and for much more, the Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion of the American Academy of Religion is delighted to honor Father Brian Hare with the 2016 Martin E. Marty Award for the Public Understanding of Religion. The focus of this panel will be a conversation between Professor Hare and Professor Sean Casey. Sean Casey is currently the US Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs and a close advisor to Secretary of State John Kerry. He has written on the ethics of war in Iraq as well as the role of religion in American presidential politics. His book, The Making of a Catholic President, Kennedy versus Nixon, 1960, um, was published by Oxford in 2009 and is a very important book on religion and politics. He's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School with a Master of Divinity degree and a Doctor of Theology in Religion and Society and also earned a Master of Public Administration from the Kennedy School of Government. After Professors Hare and Casey have a conversation, there will be some time for audience questions, which Sean will moderate. One last request, could you please check your cell phones and other noise-making devices um, and uh, turn them off. With that, Professor Casey. Thank you, Michael, for those introductions. Uh, if you can't hear, you might want to move forward. In fact, when we get to the Q&A, that will actually be helpful to us. We don't have a microphone system, so uh, I, I have at least one ear plugged at this point, so uh, I don't know about Brian, but the closer you are when you ask your questions, that's going to be the better, I think, for, for both of us. Uh, thank you, Michael, for that introduction, and, and Brian, welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I think it's a, it's a sign that there, there is justice in the universe that doctoral students 20 years later get to interrogate their thesis uh, advisors. So, uh, that's called punishment. That's, that's right. So I guess it's relative. You know, it depends on where you sit. Uh, but no, this is an honor, and, and we're so glad that you can be here. And I have been on the Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion off and on for, the, I think, about 12 years. And I have attended many of, of these, these sessions, and so I'm, I'm really quite eager uh, for, for the conversation. So Brian and I are going to talk, and when we finally get tired of each other, we will, we will segue to uh, the, the audience. So be thinking of your questions, and uh, I've done over 100 panels in Washington, D.C. in the last 15 years, and, and the best 
query I ever heard from a, a, a host was, when we get to the Q&A, tell us your name, tell us your institution, and work very hard to disguise your comment as a question. Uh, and, and, and try to keep it brief, because the briefer you are, the, the more time uh, Brian will have to, to, to answer your question. So we've, we have spoken a bit about how we might do this, and I, I think what I want to do is to start moving chronologically uh, and, and go through several phases, and then when we get down to uh, contemporary times, we'll, we'll see how, how much opportunity we have. Um, Brian, I'd like to begin, so you were born in, in Lowell, Ooh. grew up in Chelmsford, mm -hmm. in the, the middle of, of the 20th century, which were certainly fascinating times, both politically, internationally, domestically, but also very interesting times for the Catholic Church. What are some of your earliest memories in the Hare household about the intersection of religion and, and, and politics? What was that like? Well, I'll try and answer it, uh, but I do want to express my appreciation, my deep appreciation to the Academy and to the committee uh, for this award. Um, it came as a total surprise to me. I didn't think I was going to be in San Antonio on this weekend, <laughs> and it takes a while to get to San Antonio, as you know. So, so I do, but that's the first uh, way in which I feel uh, very grateful for this honor. And it's always good to be uh, associated with Martin Marty, no matter how you are. Uh, um, Marty, for me, was always two things. He was illuminating and he was intimidating. Mm. Uh, he, was, um, he was illuminating because no matter how many times other people had written on a topic, when Marty started to write on it, there always was a different angle. And it had remarkable clarity. He was intimidating because of how productive he was. I heard many years ago that he wrote standing up, so then I decided I better get a stand-up desk <laughs> and see if I could begin to enhance my productivity, but it never seemed <laughs> to get to be any challenge to Martin Marty. So I simply want to make that clear, and it, thirdly, I am honored to be on the panel with you, and I thank Michael for a generous introduction. So you're right. I was. Uh, uh, I grew up in uh, Chelmsford, which is a small town uh, in the textile area of Massachusetts. I, when I was growing up, the textile area was beginning to move out. My father worked in the same mill for 50 years. Wow. I worked in that mill in high school mm. and in college. Mm. Um, and uh, luckily for us, uh, until my father uh, left the, his work, the mill was still there. It is no the mill is there. The business is no longer there. But working there for me, I actually loved it. Uh, and uh, so that was first. Now home was uh, I had deeply uh, religious uh, father and mother. Mm -hmm. My father would go. Well, the mill walk was like 500 yards down the street from our home. The church was 500 yards in the other direction. My father would walk home from work every night and go to church to pray before he came home. Mm. Uh, my mother was deeply uh, Catholic. Uh, and so it was in that sense that uh, you grew up in a culture that there wasn't, it wasn't filled with ambiguity, let's put it that way. <laughs> and so you sort of were taught you knew who you were. We also, it was classic New England town there was Chelmsford, which was the whole town. We lived in North Chelmsford. In Chelmsford, the owners of the mill lived in large Victorian houses. 
in North Chelmsford, the people who worked in the mill. Yeah. And so it was always clear uh, where you stood. Uh, but uh, the, as far as the religion and politics, my father would read two newspapers a day. And uh, I grew up uh, in my high school years and then on when I would be home in college, we would, the, the Sunday talk shows were just starting at that time. Yeah. And Sunday, all day, the first half of Sunday, was the newspapers and the talk shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, what used to happen was the owner of the mill was a little Scotchman who didn't believe in unions, also mm -hmm. didn't believe in pensions. My mm -hmm. father, after 50 years, had no pension. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was a very nice man, and, and he would buy the newspapers and then give them to my father every day. So my father would bring them home, including the New York Herald. So it was very Republican <laughs> in the book, but we read other things beside the Herald. So. Uh, so that was the framework. I went to public schools all my life. I never stepped inside a Catholic school till I went to college, mm -hmm. and then went from college to seminary. Seminary was where you got introduced to the more intellectual dimensions of Catholicism. I entered the seminary in 1960. Pope John had called the Vatican, Second Vatican Council in January of 1959. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, I was lucky enough at St. John's in Brighton to have a remarkable group of faculty. Now, we all know no total faculty are all Aquinas's, but <laughs> the fact is we had a core group of people, and I can tell you the story. Dick McBrien was five years mm. ahead of me. Mm. Uh, we were very close friends. He preached at my first mass. Uh, and one of the faculty introduced me to Dick my first year in the seminary. Uh, and uh, Dick said, now, here's the faculty. There's the A list and the B list. <laughs> the A list, spend as much time with them as you can. The B list, get through the courses with the least amount of attention you have to give them <laughs> to get through them. So it was a, it was a ton, but the A list were terrific about what preceded the council and what was mm. happening at the council. The man who taught me fundamental moral theology began the course this way. He said, the required textbook for this course is Nolden, Schmidt, and Heinzel, which was one of the old uh, manuals of moral theology. He said, that is the required textbook, and no one is required to buy it. <laughs> the recommended textbook. The, the recommended textbook for this course is Bernard Herring's The Law of Christ, and everybody is required to buy it. <laughs> now, we weren't quite sure why he had to go through this little dance mm. until we found out that after the Reformation, in what was called the Counter-Reformation, the Vatican focused on seminaries and seminary training, down to the point that the required reading in each seminary was sent to Rome for approval. Wow. So the, the, the list went to Rome, and Rome was happy, and we were all happy because we were reading Herring. And, but it was true in ecclesiology, it was true in scripture, it was true in systematics, and it was particularly true in moral. They really gave us the sense that there was change of foot, this is the nature of the change, but to be Catholic is to know continuity in change. So your task particularly as diocesan priests, your task is going to be to help people connect what has been and what's coming and what will be. And the faculty really did a great job to do it. So 
that's when it was just a good time to be isolated for six years and have vast amounts of time to read and what not. So in that, literally in the period of your seminary education is when Vatican II is producing its right. documents. Right, it was, uh, as I say, I entered in September of 1960. Mm -hmm. Now it all didn't look upward for me because I really wanted to be in Washington, to be honest. <laughs> and the seminary, the, the disciplinary role of the seminary, mm -hmm. while, the, while the teachings changed and uh -huh. the textbooks changed, the discipline didn't change. Mm -hmm. So there were no access to newspapers, television, wow. or radio. Wow. We didn't know Kennedy got elected. Wow. Until the next morning at breakfast when they deigned to announce it to us. <laughs> and, the, and the big change in the seminary was once they brought the New York Times in, then I would go to the library and read it. Wow. So, but yeah, it was that time. Now that gets, it's getting way too anecdotal. No, no, that, no, that, no, no, that no, is, no, 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 no. That is, uh, that was so that, you know, we, we, uh, McGrien once said to me, what a good teacher does is first of all, define the major questions in the field. Secondly, introduce the students to the best scholars in the field so they'll continue. Mm. In, and thirdly, give them a love for the subject so they want to continue mm. studying. And they did that for mm. us. They, they did that for us. That's amazing. I, I, would, I would hypothesize, and if you don't want to comment on this, I understand. Mm -hmm. That wasn't necessarily the experience in every diocesan seminary at that point, right? That's a mind, That's a modest way of putting it. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, yeah. but I always thought that 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 faculty or that A-list faculty mm -hmm. did as good a job with us as was done anywhere except probably Woodstock. Mm, okay. So then uh, you. Was it much of an interregnum when you went into Harvard? Uh, or I was ordained in 1966, in May of 1966. Mm -hmm. uh, I, three weeks after I was ordained, I got called by a Catholic college in Boston, Emanuel College, mm -hmm. who had just lost somebody from the moral theology faculty, and they said the seminary faculty said to call me. So for the first year, I, I taught at Emanuel <coughs> College. I taught fundamental moral. Mm. Uh, and at the end of that year, they called me in and said, what the diocese, the reason I got to Harvard, because it's not like the Jesuits and the Dominicans where you work out a plan and, mm -hmm. and uh, tell, talk it over with your superior. Mm -hmm. The assumption in diocesan priesthood is that you'll serve in a parish. So you only go for graduate study if they have a specific assignment for you. That assignment is, has traditionally been teaching in the seminary or canon law, if mm -hmm. you're going to. But um, the director of campus ministry in Boston, which is a large responsibility given the mm -hmm. number of students, the number of schools, in addition to staffing it pastorally, he had an idea that he wanted to get somebody with a doctoral degree who could then go on a secular campus faculty as a member of the faculty and teach. So the diocese said to me, we want you to go to Harvard, we want you to get a doctorate, and you can choose your field. Hmm. So that was the instruction that got me to Harvard. So then I, I went, and the Divinity School was just starting a program at that time <coughs> called Applied Theology. You remember Reinhold Niebuhr was the professor of Applied Theology. Uh -huh. 
it was a term that didn't exist in Catholic framework. In, so it was, and the program meant that uh, it was a three-part program. You would, in your coursework, in your generals, and in your dissertation, you had to cut across the fields of ecclesiology, ethics, and a secular discipline. So you had to go someplace else on the campus and get a sponsor that would sponsor your work. So I worked between the Divinity School and the government department. And Stanley Hoffman, who was one of the senior professors in the government department, and who always reminded me that he was a secular, secular Frenchman, uh, he was not only my guide to, to graduate school, but then eventually we went on to teach together, which was an enormous privilege, and Stanley just died uh, this past year. I remember I, I was a teaching fellow for that, that class. That's right. And in, in, in the, I had two or three sections. You know, I was a starving graduate student at that time. And, and the students would always say, well, Professor Harry and Professor Hoppin, they always agree on things. Where, where do they disagree? And in our teaching fellow gathering every week, we, we kept reporting that question. And finally, I think in the final lecture, you and Stanley decided to sort of well, parse once, the differences. One student said, what do you people disagree on? And I thought, well, we did a lot, we covered a lot of ground in that course. And then Stanley said, well, we disagree on the existence of God. Right. <laughs> and that was about as far as that discussion right. ever oh. went. And, I mean, the students were like, waiting. And then when you said that, when he said that, it was like, no, okay, you know. <laughs> Uh, but that was, I mean, so that's a relationship that lasted. 40 years. Yeah. 40, 45 years. Yeah. He, yeah. Was, he was remarkable. I, my, you know, I showed up at Harvard in September. I had spent the summer school there. I didn't realize that Harvard summer school is usually high, very bright high school students who want to, who are all taking AP courses and then want to get into the university. So I spent my summer with all high school kids in political <laughs> philosophy, and I, I had uh, William Yandel Elliott. Mm. The time mm. is too short for me to describe William Yandel yeah. Elliott, yeah. but he was Henry Kissinger's mentor, and Seth Kissinger, and uh, by the time I had him, he was pretty advanced in age, so the whole seminar, which was supposed to be on American foreign policy, was his telling us war stories about <laughs> his years in Washington. And he was, he was uh, slightly opinionated on all things. <laughs> so, uh, I, but I, so in September I showed up and uh, uh, I didn't know Stanley Hoffman, but I said to somebody what I wanted to do and he said, well, you've got to go to Hoffman. Mm -hmm. So I walked into a hall with 600 students in it and he just gave this dazzling lecture. And the course was, the course was just entitled On War. Stanley was born of an American father and a Jewish Austrian mother. Father left, Stanley hardly ever knew him. Uh, but uh, when Hitler uh, entered Austria in the Anschluss, uh, Stanley and his mother had to flee. So they went to France and uh, they were in Paris and then when the Nazis invaded France, then they went south into the into the Mediterranean, and uh, he, a uh, couple of things in the Mediterranean, uh, he was in Nice, and a uh, couple of things, he went to a Catholic school, uh, which 
companies. He said, they were wonderful to me. He said, but the prayers were interminable. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they stayed in France. But what came out of that was, out of his experience, was he was determined to investigate the sources and causes of war and what could be done about it. So at that time, he taught a nine-month course just entitled On War. Mm. The first semester took you from the 5th century BC to 1945. The second semester was the nuclear age. Uh, uh, his reading list, uh, well, for one class, we were assigned War and Peace, uh, the novel. We were assigned War and Peace to get ready for that lecture. Uh, and because, and he would, they had to move the course to Memorial Hall where mm -hmm. there were 600 people, mm -hmm. three lectures a week, except when he did uh, a section. Three lectures a week, and he left the hall every day to applause, every single day. So he really taught you how to teach mm -hmm. in that sense. In that, and uh, he was a remarkable human being. I remember in this Tuesday morning session where all the teaching fellows met with both of you, we were complaining about the reading list with mm -hmm. doctoral students. And I, I will never forget this. Stanley said, well, you know, Sean, I've discovered something about Harvard undergraduates. And I'm like, okay, t tell me. I'm going to write this down. And he said something like, if you want them to read 6,000 pages a semester, you have to sign 10,000 pages. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I just read 10,000 pages. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have to do this. <laughs> so, um, you had a good Protestant conscience. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, now, at some point in that era, if I'm correct, you met John Courtney Murray. And did you not have a conversation? Well, I was introduced to Murray by, again, Dick McBrien. And okay. so I spent all of my six years in the seminary. Murray was the first person that taught me you could be interested in politics and still do theology, mm -hmm. uh, or the other way around. Uh -huh. And, and uh, so I just immersed myself in Murray. Uh, but I had never met him. And uh, we had a Jesuit who ran a seminar at the seminary. And uh, I had mentioned my work just on my, I did my own work on Murray. And he said, well, he's coming to do the commencement address at Boston College. And he said, my assignment is to drive him from the airport to the college. Mm. So would you like to come? Mm. And I said, are you kidding? I'd run <laughs> along beside the car. So the only time I ever talked with him. Uh -huh. And so I said, because they had not told me what I was going to be assigned to do, but I thought I might do graduate work. I said, I said if, uh, if, if you were going to, do, Murray had written two articles in America on morality and foreign policy. They're, they're, they're in the book we hold these two. Mm -hmm. And so I said, if you're going to do ethics and international relations, how should you do it? He said, what you should do is you should get your political science first. He said, because if you get your theology first, your categories are going to be too rigid mm. to, uh, to integrate the empirical data. Mm. So he said, now, of course, the Jesuits send people away for like 12 years to do <laughs> graduate work. The diocese expected me back on duty in six years maximum. So. I tried to do them both together. But that was his, and he, and he said, by the way, when you're going to do your political science, don't go to a place that teaches you more and more about less and less. Mm. 
Mm. He said, you need to broad scope of how you understand the world. Mm. Wow. So you, you finish and it. I, and I never saw him again. After huh. Now when, when did he die? When I, he, uh, that, that conversation took place in uh, May of 1966. He died in August of 1967. Wow. Uh, and I, I wrote him after I got accepted at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Sent him a whole idea, and he wrote back and said, "We ought to talk some more." Mm -hmm. This never happened. So he was at Woodstock at that point. Was he was still at Woodstock, uh -huh. and he he had taken over this. There was a John Lafarge Center in New York, hmm. uh, who uh, dedicated to the memory of Lafarge, and he ran that. And he was uh, he was visiting his sister on Long Island, hmm. and uh, got into a car on the 15th of August, and said, according to the cab driver take me to East 72nd Street and the cab driver said he fell over like a statue in the back of the car. Mm. His heart, he had had a chronic heart problem. They had to keep him alive during Vatican II. Mm. They sent him away to Arizona between, between sessions. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The heart was very weak and then he undertook a massive lecturing schedule after Vatican II. I just figured he knew he was dying mm. and this was the moment his yeah. whole life had been directed to. Right. So he was going to die on the job, and that's what he did. Wow. I, I never knew that. So you finish at Harvard in the 70s. Well, what happened, what happened was I was finished. I was writing my dissertation when uh -huh. I was asked to go to Washington for the Bishop Cup. So I finished the dissertation when I was down already working at the U.S. Catholic Conference. Uh -huh. So what... In that period, then, it, 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 the Catholic Conference, what, tell us a little bit about the, the, the various duties you had in that period. Mm -hmm. and I, but let's not talk about Challenge of Peace yet, but because uh, I, okay. but so what, you, yeah, you obviously well, did play several roles. Well, I was asked roles, to, right? uh, um, <coughs> essentially, it's a bureaucracy, it's the national bureaucracy of, of the Catholic Bishops of the United States. It's like the National Council of Churches mm -hmm. or or the Synagogue Council of America. So it's a standard bureaucracy, and you fit in. I was asked, uh, they had, in the policy unit, they had a distinction between the foreign policy office, which was called International Justice and Peace, mm -hmm. and the domestic policy office. Yeah. And at first, I, I was asked to run the International Affairs Office. Uh, and this was, uh, I went there in May, of 1973, and so uh, this was Vietnam time. Bishops were split over Vietnam. I actually didn't get to do very much on that because I was 73. I, uh, yeah, I, I was immersed in mm -hmm. getting into the office. Mm -hmm. There were three people in the office when I first got there, and then it went to nine, and um, uh, it was uh, it, what was interesting apart from Vietnam was there was a beginning of interest in religion and, and international affairs. You had human rights questions in Latin America, uh, Brazil, Chile. Uh, I, remember, I remember interviewing uh, a missionary who uh, had been picked up at the time of, um, of the Pinochet mm. uh, coup, mm. and he ended up in the stadium where, where all the prisoners. He got out somehow, and mm. I, he was in my office within weeks. Um, that started a train of people who came. Uh, 
in Chile, particularly the Jesuits in Chile would uh, come up and visit the Bishop's Conference. Cardinal Silva would come. Cardinal Silva became the spokesman for the opposition in, uh, in Chile. And he would come to Washington and he would call ahead of time and say, I've got to see so-and-so and so-and-so so-and-so. So, so it worked its way through. So we had human rights questions. Um, we didn't do a lot of work on the nuclear question or on war and peace, apart from Vietnam. As I say, we didn't do a lot of work in the 70s. It was much more human rights, mm -hmm. international relations, mm -hmm. and social justice questions. Um, American missionaries, and I'm sure this is true in other denominations also, uh, American missionaries had gotten this sense that they ought to help take responsibility for American foreign policy. So they would begin, and they couldn't do much in country or else they'd get expelled. Mm. So what they used to do was to then lobby the bishops on, on, on questions. And, uh, and so then it became that we were asked to deal with the Congress, the executive branch. So it was human rights in Chile, in Brazil, in Peru. Uh, eventually in the 80s it became human rights in Central America, Nicaragua, El Salvador each one of those. That was one set of issues. Mm -hmm. Another set of issues was the Middle East. I went to the Bishops' Conference in, in June of 1973, and the Yom Kippur War broke out in October. Mm. And the bishops always meet in November for their national meetings. So when the Yom Kippur War broke out, um, there were all kinds of pressures for us to say something. So. My boss said, you've got, to you've got to brief the bishops on the Yom Kippur War. So, so that was the beginning of pretty deep involvement on the Middle East. I became, uh, uh, um, I directed the office, but the issues that I took to myself were primarily were war and peace in the Middle East and then the human rights issue. And uh, so, and I became really quite involved with Lebanon at the time because the Lebanese wanted protection and help and found out just how complicated religion and politics was in, uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, the representative that would come to represent the Lebanese Christians was a man named Charles Malik. Charles Malik was one of the, one of the founding signers of the UN Declaration of the UN Charter in 1945, mm -hmm. he came. The first thing he said to me was, "I have three Harvard degrees." So I said, "Well, I only got one. So <laughs> I'll do the best I can." Uh, uh, Malik also uh, did not. Uh, Malik did not uh, receive criticism or disagreement easily, uh, and so I, I I grew to sit and listen to Malik for hours on end. But he taught me a lot. He mm. taught me a lot. Lebanon was posed as Christian, Muslim. He came to me and he said, sir, he used to call me sir all the time. He said, sir, he said, Lebanon has 17 different religious communities and each one of them is protected by the right of freedom of religion. And he said, I will tell you one thing, the Lebanese Christians will not be the cops in Egypt. Now his view of that was the cops that weren't weren't opposing the government sufficiently, so we will not be the cops. But of course, he was also ready to go to war if he needed to. So, so then, it's the early Reagan administration. 
nuclear doctrine takes the precipitous turn in evolution. And I, I wonder if you can tell us, because I mean, some people, some of my students read the challenge of peace, and it seems like it just fell out of the sky with no context. Some people think it rose from hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what were the precipitating discussions then in the conference itself and among your staff that led to mm -hmm. saying we need to write a pastoral letter? I know, I used to be interviewed all the time and there was this thought that there was some great secret meeting in which we decided to do this. But um, anybody who's read Marx Weber knows how bureaucracy produces many different things. What, what happened in 1981, so Reagan, yeah, Reagan was, Reagan was elected in, uh, in 1980. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, he starts in January. Of yeah, 1980. So um, uh, at the bishops' meeting, they used to have a session at the end of the meeting when any bishop could stand up and say, I think the bishops' conference ought to do X. Mm. And basically, most of the time, that just meant they were going to do X. So it was instructing the staff. So at that meeting, uh, Tom Gumbleton stood up and said, the Vatican has produced a lot of writings about the ethics of war. I think we ought to gather those up and make them available to the Catholics of the United States. Mm -hmm. That's from, mm -hmm. At the same meeting, Tom, uh, uh, Peter Rosaza, who was an auxiliary bishop in Hartford and very much to the left and among the bishops, he stood up and said, I think we ought to write a pastoral letter mm -hmm. on capitalism and the economy. And so uh, they took down the notes, mm -hmm. and then the following week, I was called in by my boss and said, well, we've got to do these two letters. And I said, you know, we can't do these two letters. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said, we have to restructure things. So we had to set up two special committees, and, uh, and it was clear that the war and peace thing was more urgent at the time. So they set up a committee of five bishops, and... Uh, we had to staff it, and that's how it got going. Mm -hmm. and what, the next year, what happened was we put out the first draft. And again, you put out drafts because if the bishops are going to consider something in November, it has to be mailed to them. This is bureaucracy. It has to be mailed to them uh, in late September. So we put out uh, not the first draft, but the second draft of the letter, in October of 1982, and it called for no first use and a deep critique, allowing for deterrence, but a critique of different aspects. The New York Times ran it just before the election, front page, left-hand column, Catholic bishops take on. James Reston called it an astounding challenge to the authority of the state from an organization that was best known for its opposition to communism. So we had no, everybody thought that we timed it so uh -huh. it would come out just before the election. We, were, we weren't that smart. I mean, basically, it was because the bureaucracy said you had to do it. So that was the second draft, and uh -huh. then there was lots of debate. That's, it was then got published, and, and so it was all over the country, and we were answering the things. And, and then we were into this series of hearings, which we never really planned. It just once once this thing started to take on water and, and we were getting lots of questions, 
I said, we've got to have some authorities here mm. to back us up. Mm. Bishops are not going to be able to sustain this kind of thing. So then we started the hearing process, and one hearing led to another, and then the administration wanted to be heard. So we went to the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, National Security Advisor. We brought in congressional people, but then we had these hearings around the country where you'd have Pax Christi and mm -hmm. other people show the hearings, and then every time it happened and the press did more editorials, <coughs> the Boston Globe did three stunning editorials over a process of three years. The editorial writer at that time has since died, but he really, he, he understood the letter really well. Um, so it, it just, I guess my point is it didn't start from any great insight that we developed. Yeah. We got in yeah. and we were in deeper than we thought and then mm. we just had to keep going. Mm. So, uh, I mean, obviously, and, and we can go as deeply or as shallowly, in, shallowly into this as, as you suggest or want to, but obviously, in retrospect, you can make the argument that the challenge of peace was mm a prudential response to a new political environment mm. in, in a, a policy partly, shift. That partly. I think it's part of the dynamic. So can you, and, and can you, I mean, right now, obviously, at our conference today, I mean, there are, there are these spontaneous panels that are, they're not even in the program about responding to the current political, political atmosphere. And we're debating, I think, as a guild, not only do religion scholars have a role, a duty to respond to political, events, but how do we do that? And so the pastoral letter was not, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, was not a normal genre of the Catholic bishops routinely. Well, no, they it? have I mean, done pastoral letters going back to 1919. Uh, the 1919 pastoral letter of the bishops' conference was really the forerunner, uh, was really authored by John A. Ryan, and mm, it was, okay. it laid out it was all in social and economic justice, and mm -hmm. it foreshadowed a lot of the New Deal. The one biography of Ryan that's been written so far, the title of the biography is The Right Reverend New Dealer. So <laughs> that's the way Ryan was known in Washington. So no, they had done pastoral letters uh -huh. on a variety of things. No, that wasn't new. Okay. What was new about this was the attention it attracted, essentially. Mm, okay. and, and what happened was there were just a series of things that um, uh, uh, Archbishop Roach, who was the president of the conference in that October 1982 uh, uh, meeting, uh, which had been foreshadowed by the New York Times, mm -hmm. Roach gave a speech uh, in which he took up three issues. Uh, one was the nuclear question. Uh, the, the second was economic justice, and the third was abortion. Mm. And he said this agenda mm -hmm. of issues is what we are focused on. Mm -hmm. So that happened. Now, to your question, uh, well, yeah, I mean, again, I use Murray. Uh, Murray's argument was always that policy was the meeting place where the demands uh, on a political leader to uh, to be effective met the demands of moral argument about the limits and the imperatives of what what it, it, it mm -hmm. is meant to be. Mm -hmm. And he argued on, on just war that what the just war theory did 
was, on the one hand, it was to be a public policy ethic. In other words, it was to be a moral framework that had the capacity to enter the details of the political strategic argument mm -hmm. and not collapse, mm -hmm. not collapse under mm -hmm. the pressure. Secondly, in addition to being a policy ethic, the just war ethic was to be a personal ethic. So it was to help citizens know when they should say yes to the state and when they should say no to the state. So I think the obligation comes from the nature of religious moral discourse. Religious moral discourse is meant to be public as well as personal. It is meant to be social and institutional as well as personal, familial, character, etc. So, so if it is meant to be that, then the question is, how do you do it? Right. Now again, I've, I've already tipped my hand. I mean, the, 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 my view is uh, that, that Murray was right, mm -hmm. that you need to understand the shape of the empirical problem before you do the normative analysis. Mm -hmm. Because if you get the empirical problem wrong, your moral analysis may either be irrelevant or it may simply be wrong. Now, the, the empirical analysis obviously doesn't yield the normative outcome. So then you need a structured framework of moral discourse, moral tradition, religious moral tradition that you can draw upon once you've shaped the empirical problem and understand it. So then you look for the intersection of those two things. So I think uh, not only scholars, but religious communities as religious communities. Uh, uh, and what happened with us was, in fact, it, there was the nuclear question, then there was Central America, as well as human rights questions. And those were the things that absorbed the 1980s, really. In, in my role as sort of the State Department's portal for moral communities to come in, it's often that empirical piece that is, is poorly handled. And, well, and, it's, and it's hard when you, you come in and try to talk to State Department career folk, and if you don't understand the empirical piece, you, you lose a hearing. Well, I quickly. think that's right. It's always polite, but it's, but it's a polite dismissal. If yeah. they think, if, if, if you can't defend, now, you can have an empirical analysis that is different than the empirical analysis of the State Department. Right. But then right. what you need to be able to do is to just sustain your empirical analysis. So yeah. you can't fall through on either one. If you fall through on either one, I think the argument collapses. Right. Uh, or you're simply treated as well-intentioned but misguided. Right. So, I mean, obviously, somebody like <coughs> Niebuhr was the extraordinary person. I mean, right. Niebuhr was so good at his empirical analysis that no one wanted to take him on on that front. And, right. and, and then he had his own distinctive way of developing. I mean, Niebuhr and Murray were good friends. They were not on the same page. Murray's chapter on morality and war, morality and foreign policy, and we hold these truths, is not his best presentation because it was almost pre-ecumenical. It was a severe critique of, of Niebuhr without ever naming him. And Niebuhr's student, students came out of the woodwork when that, when that chapter was published. 
to defend the master. And, uh, but he and Murray were were close friends personally. Mm. But Murray argued that Niebuhr's mistake was not the empirical part, but he said the moral structure of the argument that he used. Yes, and it, it's sometimes uh, in our office we end up coaching religious communities on the empirical piece. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and and as I say that. You need to get the normative from the empirical. That's an intellectual mistake. Nor can you necessarily uh, have an empirical analysis that those in power are going to agree with. This doesn't mean your empirical analysis is, is wrong. Right. It just means you've got to be able to defend it right. so it's respectable. That's right. So they can't, they can't dismiss you on empirical grounds without no, I, I, I would agree with that. I know uh, we're going to segue to audience questions in a few minutes, so don't, don't lose heart. Uh, <clears throat> let me, I'm going to jump over some of the things we, we had talked about. Uh, you recently have done some analysis comparing and contrasting uh, modern popes, in particular John Paul II and Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can sort of give us the, the sort of executive summary of your, your thinking in that, in that comparison and contrast between these two uh, well, pivotal Well, it, it's figures. a work in progress <laughs> because <laughs> Francis is still with us and, right. and with us in capital letters. So, I mean, one, one analyzes Francis at some risk. Uh, because mm -hmm. the following week you may get blown out of the water by something you were sure he thought and he didn't. <laughs> so, but I mean, I think, um, well, both of them have uh, had obviously had enormous public impact, but in different ways, in different ways. Uh, when Francis was first elected, I think I gave a lecture someplace, I think at John Carroll, in which I said, any pope needs to be three things. First of all, he needs to be a pastor who can inspire faith. I said, secondly, he needs to be an administrator who can oversee a huge bureaucratic enterprise because under Benedict, we had an extraordinary mind, but the administration had fallen apart under it, so it was really in terrible shape. So he needs to be an administrator, and I said, thirdly, he needs to be uh, a diplomat, meaning that he would deal with world politics. I said, I'm sure he's going to be an excellent pastor. Secondly, he's taken these steps of reorganizing the oldest bureaucracy in the Western world and has done it in an impressive way by bringing in outside. I said, I don't think he'll deal with the diplomatic thing very well. And so since then, uh, I've had to roll back that lecture. I mean, in the right. sense of the number of different <coughs> things he's dealt with. Um, so, so that's his, John Paul II's impact was global in the sense that it reached far beyond the Catholic Church on, on the, the, um, the sort of political, social, human rights question. Uh, I think their styles are different. That's what I've written on a little bit in the sense that I think um, Francis, in his own way, this, uh, deals with prophetic discourse in many, many ways. In prophetic discourse in terms of how he states questions, how he, uh, in a sense, calls for uh, dramatic.
data changed. I mean, my impression of, of profits were they were not uh, interested in syllogistic reasoning, nor were they interested in long, slow conversions. They wanted to state the case and they wanted immediate conversions. Whether they really expected that or not, I can't say. But Francis, I think, speaks in prophetic discourse. Now, let me be clear, Laudato Si was an extraordinary uh, piece of work about the empirical and the normative mm. in a question that I empirically don't know a lot about, but I certainly can recognize, recognize good piece of work. So, prophetic discourse. John Paul II, in his encyclicals, in many ways, was a casualist. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I would take two issues to illustrate what I mean. If you take the way they deal with globalization and the way they deal with the market, now both of them had critiques of globalization and critiques of the market, but it's different kinds of critiques. Uh, John Paul II on globalization and the market, again, in his what I would call empirical analysis, uh, he said of globalization, it is not a force of nature, that is to say, we should not simply uh, be swept off our feet by globalization. We should not believe that it, are, it, it is forces that can't be directed or controlled. And so then he did, to some degree, his analysis of the positive parts and the negative parts. And he had both, I think. The market, uh, he said, uh, in Centesima Sanus, he said the market has assets and limitations. Uh, and he said the assets are that it can protect the citizen from governmental intrusion, excessive government. Uh, secondly, that it sponsored initiatives, if you will. And thirdly, when it worked well, they provided some rational allocation of resources. The limitation was that the market might produce, might produce efficiency. It would not produce justice by itself. So again, to go back to the Murrayan, you had to have a moral framework that you placed down over the market or placed down over globalization and asked, you know, what are the nature of the actions involved, objectively right or wrong? What are the intentions that guide the policy? And how do you assess the consequences of the policy? You can ask other questions too, but it, you can deal with that. Francis doesn't go into those kinds of details, mm -hmm. and, and, and yet, you know, he, they both had compelling presences on the global stage. Francis, I think, has a compelling presence that relates more directly to people. John Paul had a kind of, you know, speaking from on high that impressed people, but uh, that, uh, that was, you know, in a sense, might have been less accessible mm -hmm. in some ways. I know uh, in the lead up to the Paris Accord, when Laudato Si came out, I mean, there were people walking the halls of the State Department reading that. And in the, yeah, the, the environmental similar. policy people themselves were, were mesmerized by that. Yeah, and I it, think it had a huge a, impact. It's been, a, it's, it's, you know, I don't know who did that, um, as I don't know who worked with him on his speeches to Congress and to the UN when he was here. Yeah. I can tell you one anecdote about the Congressional Address. I was talking, <coughs> I was talking to a congressperson from Massachusetts after the address, and he said to me, 
you know, he said, with the Pope's accent, I had a hard time understanding everything he was saying. And he said, so when he got to naming those three people, uh, Martin Luther King and Thomas Merton, he said, I had those two. And then he said, I thought he said Doris Day. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I said to myself, where are we going? <laughs> he was old enough to remember Doris Day. <laughs> so... I mean, those speeches were masterpieces, uh -huh. and uh, and uh, Laudato Si, I think, is yeah. too. Um, yeah. Well, I, I have more questions, but I'm I'm going to restrain myself at this, at this point, uh, and if it lulls, I'll I'll throw more questions at you. So now let's let's open it up. Uh, if you could just raise your hand, and again identify who you are, your institutional framework. And I may repeat the question here so everybody can hear it. So you need to articulate such that I can hear it. Uh, so please, uh, are, are there are there questions for, for Brian? All right, Eric, we'll start here. Thank you. Father, I thank you so much for this presentation. I'm a resident from Boston College. Um, it seems like right now that uh, we sort of move on to racial science and women. Um, I think there's also been a kind of a hot water on it. I'd love to hear you in your insight. Well, as I said, uh, my work with Cardinal Bernardine is the question. So that it principally, not exclusively, but it principally was uh, due to the, to the uh, uh, War and Peace letter. But there really were three chapters to it. As soon as I got to the Bishops' Conference in 1973, uh, as you would remember, in 1976, we had the 200th anniversary of the United States, so the bishops decided on a process that was not unlike the hearing process for their contribution to the 1976 observance. So they set up a three-year process, two-year process on justice in the world. And there were two committees, uh, there, there were, uh, and Bernadine chaired uh, one of those two committees and I staffed him in that enterprise. So we went around the country on eight different issues, holding hearings and commentary. But in fact, it never got the kind of attention outside the church that the other pastorals of the eight. So that was first. Secondly came the War and Peace piece. And then the third were these speeches and discussions about a consistent ethic of life, which came because Bernadine had been chair of the War and Peace Committee. He finished that and they elected him chair of the pro-life committee. So he laid out an argument at the outset about how he thought about the relationship of these two issues, war and peace and abortion. So there were those three issues. On the war and peace, uh, he was selected as chair. Weakland was selected as chair of the economic committee. And I had written a memo to my boss at the bishops' conference that we ought to set up these two special committees of bishops then we'd staff them from within. And so he, uh, uh, he was chair of the War and Peace Committee, and it was pretty classic Bernadine. He wanted a pacifist on the committee, and he wanted a military person on the committee. So that was Cardinal O'Connor for the military person, and Tom Gumbleton mm -hmm. as the pacifist. Then he wanted two bishops who weren't deeply involved in these issues at all, mm. but were active pastoral bishops so that they could tell him how it was going in the field. So that was the five members of the committee. So 
as that went along over two years, he would call me virtually every, oh, then he was named Archbishop of Chicago. And so all of a sudden, he's got Chicago on his hands. And uh, he used to call me almost every night at 10 o'clock mm. or 11 o'clock, which was only 10 o'clock your time, but it was 11 o'clock my time. <laughs> So everybody in the rectory in Falls Church, Virginia, knew the call was coming in at 11 o'clock. It wasn't a sick call to go to the hospital. So, so he would call every night. And, uh, and um, you know, he, he basically wanted to be sure everybody was heard on the committee. He did it by votes. Uh, he always wanted consensus. Sometimes we would have a pretty intense discussion and he'd wait till everybody else left the room, and he said, now your job is to write something they both will agree with. <laughs> so, so it just went on that way for a while. So it was pretty intense uh, during, and you know, he got more comfortable with it as it went along. In the beginning, he was not that comfortable with doing public uh, 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 presentations on it because he was pushed on the empirical part. So. Uh, we, well, you know, we just, the product was the product, and uh, it brought him enormous visibility, and, and he had to take on a whole series of roles that he had to. Then the consistent ethic part was just to try to bring together different pieces of the church, of the Catholic Church's public view. And uh, I remember uh, one of the people who were, were, there were two people who were very helpful to us as the letter went forward. Uh, again, I keep talking about the empirical part. One was McGeorge Bundy, who mm. had been a mm. uh, national security advisor and had taught American foreign policy at Harvard, and then had gone after Washington, had gone to New York, and he was writing this mammoth six, 700-page history of the nuclear age. And uh, Bundy was known to be a pretty caustic guy if he thought your arguments weren't good. And I was in my office one day, and my secretary called and said, uh, Mr. Bundy's on the phone. Mm. And I thought, this could be a tough call. <laughs> so uh, I picked up the phone. He said, this is Mac Bundy. He said, I think the bishops have got it right, and I'll help you in any way I can. Now, religiously, McGeorge Bundy described himself as an unconvinced Episcopalian. <laughs> so that was his view of religion. So he started. And uh, he was very helpful. And then when we got to the final vote, we were going to Chicago for the final vote of the letter. And it was the week before. He called me and he said, what do you need? Mm -hmm. And I said, the bishops are shaky about being so deeply involved in such a complicated issue. Because mm -hmm. they were, the critiques were that you were undermining deterrence. I mean, mm -hmm. the French and German government went to the Vatican on the no first use question and said, this is going to undercut the defense of our country. So then, I guess I haven't talked about that, there was another meeting where we were called to Rome mm. to meet with the Vatican bureaucracy and with Cardinal Ratzinger running the meeting. Mm. So um, I said, the bishops, I said to Bundy, I said, the bishops are just nervous about their standing. And I said, Anybody that can affirm that they're on the right track will be helpful. He said, I'll get George Kennan. Mm. And so mm. he called Kennan, and Kennan uh, 
turned out an op-ed that got published on Sunday in the New York Times, and then we had to take the vote on Tuesday. So it was enormously helpful. Yes, sir. So uh, that particular description of uh, description <coughs> distinguishing civil society from political arena, I think I fully agree with that. I, I describe it a little different way. I, I, I say there's a distinction between the state and the wider civil society. And in my view, where religion fits in the American political process, uh, we sit in civil society. Uh, so we are like other voluntary associations. We're like other voluntary associations. Uh, the, the meaning of the First Amendment, if I had to give it a political meaning, I think the meaning of the First Amendment is that religious bodies as religious should expect no special favoritism and should expect no special discrimination because they're religious. So on that ground, they fit within civil society. They uh, uh, have all the rights and duties of other participants in civil society, and they need to observe them. Now, uh, the question is, how do, you, how do you do that on any issue, abortion or any other issue? Uh, in my view, uh, what we should do is not talk about candidates. I, I, do, not, uh, I do not think in my view anyway, the pulpit is the place to talk about candidates. And in my view, generally, I would not uh, advise the bishops to explicitly endorse candidates. Secondly, we should talk about principles and we should talk about policy issues. And that's the way you participate in civil society. Now, that line gets wavy. That line gets wavy as you talk about Particularly if, and this, this came up in the letters all the time, that is to say, after you laid out the structure of the moral framework in the first part of the letter, and then you took up in the first part of the letter again the empirical questions and played them out, then you made some conclusions. 
So then people were saying, well, is that, is that drawing of those conclusions political in the wrong sense of the term? And my view uh, always was that, uh, the, uh, that you, what you needed to do was to distinguish in the letter the principles by which you analyze, your assessment of the facts as you found them, and then say, we are now about to enter a realm of contingent moral choice. And that contingent moral choice means we're offering these things for, to you. Now, given the nature of Catholic teaching, that's, it's gonna be harder to do that on abortion than it is on other things because of the way the, the, the act of abortion is described. It is not, uh, it is not unlike uh, the direct intentional bombing of civilians in, in the moral argument uh, in the sense of direct intentional taking of human life. You refer to a piece beyond the empirical, normative, and policy conclusions, and that is every bishop in the country is, um, is in charge of his own diocese, and bishops make pastoral judgments about how they will talk about these issues, and frankly, they disagree on how to do it. They, did, they disagreed in this election, and they've disagreed in almost every election that I can remember. Uh, so, um, uh, I would say that uh, Cardinal McCarrick was right on the question of communion. McCarrick said, I do not want to be in the position of standing before the altar with the Eucharist in my hand, making decisions at that moment about who ought to receive the Eucharist. So I think that's the appropriate pastoral answer, but not everyone agreed with that nor will they in the future, to be honest. Mara. Well, it, 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 saying mass involves the sacramental and the scriptural and the preaching. And so I preach every Sunday, uh, uh, two or three masses on a weekend, and have all my life. Uh, and so that's where I really face it when I think about what I'm going to say and then it does run through my mind. Um, uh, the, uh, when, when we were writing the letter, I was in a parish in Northern Virginia uh, in, uh, in Falls Church, Virginia, the huge parish, 10,000 people. Uh, and I was in that parish for 20 years. Uh, we estimated that a third of the parishioners were colonels or above. Uh, and, uh, and then we had some particular folks. We had Ollie Norm in wow. the parish. Wow. Uh, and, uh, if you may remember Ollie Norm. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. I mean, I'm, I hate telling these war stories, no, but they no, all come, no, they all come no. to mind. So, Ollie North was in the parish, and I would see him coming out of, I saw this man coming out of Mass one Sunday, and he came there after I'd been there 10 years, and he introduced himself, and there were lots of military folks, so I said hello. 
then I was going to the White House three days later on some issue, and Ollie North meets me outside the way and he, what are you doing here? I think he thought I was on a sick call. And <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I, my job brings me here. So that was that. <laughs> then I got a call. I guess since, since, since the person who called me is dead, I think I can use this. Ed, Ed Wig, Edwin Williams, the lawyer in Washington uh -huh. who was a major player in everything, the title of his biography was The Man to See. <laughs> and he was very, very devout Catholic. Uh, and uh, he saw me one day, I mean, I'd known him for a long time. He saw me one day, he said, I gotta tell you a story. He said, you know Ollie North? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, my law firm is defending him. By this time, North was under defense. Uh, he said, my law firm is defending him. And he said, I read in the paper within the last couple of months that he now goes to an evangelical church in Southern Virginia. <laughs> So he said, I saw him in the office the other day, and I called him in, and I said, Law, I said, North, what are you doing leaving the Catholic Church when you're in the trouble you're in? And he said, North said, well, I was a good Catholic till they sent this priest hair to the parish. <laughs> and he said, we couldn't touch nuclear weapons. Well, he obviously hadn't read anything I had written, but that was so... So there is that, and what I've tr always tried to do is to sort of be really careful mm -hmm. about what I do in the pulpit as opposed to what I would do in a lecture or what I would do in a bishop's document that said, this is a contingent conclusion, because you don't have time to do that in a Catholic home. You know, we're yeah. talking 12 to 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, they start walking out. I mean, so, or committing mortal sin outside in the parking lot as they're trying to get out. So, so uh, I, I go very carefully about, uh, I say a lot of things in other settings that I would not say from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. uh, Francis? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, of course, obviously, different levels to make the point that you would know, Francis. <laughs> You're the systematician. You, you would know. It's a little different. Uh, and, uh, and we were always aware of that. And to be honest, when we got called to the Vatican, which we were. Uh, we were. It was, wasn't harsh. It was, uh, I, I, my boss called me down and he said the nuncio called and said, do you think the American bishops would accept an invitation to go to the Vatican? Well, that's like being invited to your mother-in-law's for Thanksgiving. I mean, <laughs> so we said, sure. And then <coughs> we went and uh, we had no idea who was going to be in the meeting. No idea, mm -hmm. right up to the time of the meeting. We had asked for one thing, and that was simultaneous translation. So we get to the meeting, we walk in, the hall's filled with bishops from every country in uh, Western Europe and part of Eastern Europe. 
in the back row, there's the faculty from the major, from the Greg and the Alfonsiano. Mm. And up on this high mm. desk, looking down on us, there's Cardinal Ratzinger, Cardinal Kasparovi, mm. uh, Archbishop Bishop Scotte, and a couple of others. So we're, we're ready to go. It was Bernadine Roach, me, and the General Secretary, Dan Horst. We're in the front row. Cardinal Ratzinger, Ratzinger opens the meeting in hoc momento historico. He's going to conduct the meeting in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to Bernadine, you might as well send me home. <laughs> so Bernadine's courageous, raises his hand and says, Cardinal Ratzinger, we think some of the technical uh, intensity of this may not be captured in Latin. <laughs> So Ratzinger looked at us like, you know, the barbarians are here, and yeah. then he switched to English. And so, so that was, so, uh, no, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, I think, yes, the, uh, first of all, in many ways, the political voices, certainly in the U.S., are more differentiated religiously. So, I mean, what's always struck me is the way the Pew Foundation does their review of the spectrum, you break Protestantism into two groups. There's the mainline group and the evangelicals, and they're e easily split. And they, so that's a whole thing that was not there. Uh, although eventually there were groups e in the evangelicals that took up the issue from more than one side. So I think, I think the political, I mean, the, the religious spectrum is more uh, engaged politically, if I can if I can look at that. I think, um, secondly, the political polarization of the country reinforces a, uh, a, a, a differentiated spectrum. The spectrum could be differentiated, but not so polarized. I think that's the second thing. I think thirdly, um, thirdly, uh, obviously, I've been out of the Bishops' Conference for a long time, but I worked for Cardinal O'Malley, and I've get to speak to bishops, there is no question that the sexual abuse crisis has placed such a burden on our ability to speak publicly that it's almost unimaginable. Because it's no longer have you got the empirical analysis right, have you got the moral analysis right. The great tragedy and the great um, catastrophe of the sexual abuse question, of course, first, was the people who were abused and their families. But secondly, it was the loss of trust. It was the loss of trust inside the church and of the church in society. I was at Catholic Charities nationally when all this happened. I used to have to be out around the country, and I always said there used to be a presumption that the Catholic Church was a stable, solid partner to think about American society from other people. There is now a presumption that is that that's not the case. And so that that's a particularly Catholic question. It doesn't affect everyone. But it's those things. It's the differentiated spectrum. It was the deeper politicalization and the polarization. And then thirdly, for us, you just you can't write anything, you can't say anything without thinking about how it's going to be heard because of that. Lisa. 
You've had your hand up. Well, I, I do think uh, I do think chaplains in the first instance are pastoral. Uh, I mean, in the first instance, uh, um, and I was asked to speak to chaplains during the during the uh, uh, the uh, writing of the letter, um, and and I lecture to the military all the time. Uh, I've spoken at the National War College now for about 28 years, uh, every year, as part of their curriculum. They have a whole section on ethics and war. Um, and uh, then at Harvard, I have military people all the time. But I see myself there in that setting different than the chaplain, because I'm not there primarily to be pastoral in either of those settings. But chaplains are to be pastoral. So, uh, I'll, I'll give you one, again, story that stays with me. Uh, I think the best single article of last century in the Catholic community in the United States on War and Peace was Father John Ford, who at the time was the leading Catholic moral theologian in the country. And in 1944, he wrote an article in Theological Studies called The Morality of Obliteration Bombing. And he took up in great, great detail. It was a classical casuistic treatment of the, uh, the obliteration bombing of the country, uh, uh, carried out by the Allies. And he gave a devastating judgment on it. And it was the year before Hiroshima. And remember, he, I remember he had a section at the end of the article that basically said, we have now crossed the line with this obliteration bombing, and we will regret it in the future. And Hiroshima was a year away from that. But George Bundy, in his history of the political era, said when the time came to decide about Hiroshima, no one, no one in the upper reaches of the American government 
raised the question about bombing civilians because, he said, that question had been settled at Dresden and Tokyo. Now, things have changed on that front. There is a lot of attention to that. But I always see my position is to lay out the moral and the empirical. The, and what Ford did, interesting, in that article was Ford said, so the question comes to me, should a chaplain in the confessional raise questions on obliteration bombing with pilots? And he said, I basically said, I think we've done such a poor job in instructing people about what's right and wrong on this that you cannot impose that duty on someone who has no background to hear what you're saying and to follow their advice. So I think chaplains in their pastoral, now today, I think you can expect more from chaplains, but there is a line that is pastoral rather than, than uh, public policy, and that allows for more distinctions about, you know, people like Vittoria, when they wrote on just war, uh, developed this category of simultaneous, simultaneous ostensible justice. So Vittoria said, can both sides be right in a war? He said, well, it's not possible that both sides be right because there'd be a contradiction. But both sides can be convinced they're right subjectively, and that has to be taken into account, particularly at the pastoral level. Well, sadly, we have hit 4.30, and uh, I know there are other sessions to go to, but please join me in thanking Brian for this. And again, congratulations on the Marty Award. Well, I, yeah, and this has been as a I say, illuminating and intimidating. <laughs> right. Thank you all very much for coming. <laughs>